The Compliance Perspectives podcast is sponsored by Entrax, the contract lifecycle management solution that is exclusively focused on healthcare. Learn more at www.entrax.com. Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletow from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Chandler, Arizona is Matt Silverman. Matt is Global Trade Director and Senior Counsel at Viavi Solutions, and he is also the author of the chapter, U.S. Anti-Boycott Laws, Understanding the Impact and Ensuring Compliance in the 2023 Complete Compliance and Ethics Manual. Matt, first, thanks for coming back to the podcast and for writing the article. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Adam. It's uh, it's an interesting topic to, to talk about, so I'm happy to be here today. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And one of the things that, you know, as I read through the chapter and got ready for this podcast struck me is that while U.S. anti-boycott laws have been around for decades, they don't seem to come up as often as they used to with so much the focus these days on economic sanctions of Iran and Russia. It would be good probably for people who are less familiar with it to start with what did the boycott law or what did the anti-boycott laws say? Yeah, so, um, so let me give you a little a little background because you know practicing in international trade now for I don't know close to 15 years, um, you know I see a lot in sanctions and export controls, obviously customs, and anti boycott is actually a, an important part of international trade that sometimes gets overlooked. So so here's kind of in a nutshell, anti boycott laws are. Um, first of all, they don't just apply to the Arab League boycott of Israel. But for purposes today, that's really 99.9% of the time what we're talking about. So shortly after um, Israel was uh, became a country, a number of Arab countries got together, formed the Arab League boycott of Israel. Essentially, they agreed they weren't going to import anything from Israel. They weren't going to export anything to Israel, have business relationships with Israel. And along with that, they also agreed and had on the book certain laws that said that their country and companies and persons within those countries weren't allowed to do business with other countries and companies that did business with Israel. Um, so around 1970, the U.S. decided that wasn't okay with them. They, they weren't going to allow U.S. persons and U.S. companies to further or agree to or support those types of boycotts. They said, you know, um, these Arab countries, they, they have a right, if they want to have what's called a primary boycott against Israel, if they want to boycott Israel, that's their right to do that as a sovereign nation. But we, the United States, we're not going to do anything to support that. And we're going to make it really illegal for U.S. persons and U.S. companies to take actions that would support it. So in the early 1970s, we saw um, from both um, both the Commerce Department, actually, and U.S. Treasury. So we have two different kind of regimes when it comes to U.S. anti-boycott law. Now have uh, anti-boycott laws on the books in the U.S. And essentially what those laws say, and they're, they're a little different depending on whether you're talking about Treasury or Commerce, but what they essentially say is U.S. persons, meaning um, you and I, individuals, as well as U.S. companies, cannot take action to help to support or further an unsanctioned or an unendorsed foreign boycott. So again, 
it doesn't technically just apply to the Arab League boycott of Israel. Um, there are other types of uh, uh, unendorsed boycotts out there. But from for what I see, uh, not day to day, but for what I see, um, you know, usually uh, it's it's almost always related to the Arab League boycott of Israel. So we see this in a lot of different ways, and 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 there's all different types of uh, of, of of documents, um, whether it's commercial invoices, contracts, agreements, procurement orders, um, uh, tenders, all different types of documents where we see uh, boycott language that that U.S. companies have to be aware of. Sometimes it's in the form of um, you know, a uh, maybe you're 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 a company and you're bidding for a certain project, and the agreement that you have to sign says language like, "If you win this contract uh, or you win your bid, you agree uh, that you will not employ any Israelis in this project." Or we need to know before you even submit your bid. We want to know the nationality of all the employees working at your company, or we want to know. Um, if you do business, your company in general, does your company do business with any Israeli companies? So these are all different types of language, and there's too many to mention on the podcast today, although the Treasury Department, but also the, the Commerce Department has a lot of really good examples. So if you're ever looking to see examples of what, what is boycott language, um, you can go onto their websites. Uh, the, the Department of Commerce has the Office of um, Anti-Boycott Compliance, OAC. They have really good examples and uh, of the type of language that companies need to be aware of. Uh, I have to admit, I, I'm surprised that the risk is still as present as it is. You know, as you noted, they began because of the Arab League boycott, but by the same token, over the last several years we've seen peace treaties like the one with the uae greater cooperation yeah. between the israelis and saudi arabia um so there's still the risk there there there's still a risk and, and here's why so um you're, you're right so the arab what what the arab league boycott once was it no longer is it still exists um in some ways a lot of these you know countries in the arab league really just give lips to the arab league boycott they don't really go along with it anymore, um, or if they do, it's not to the extent that it was previously. And as you mentioned, with the UAE and some other countries, we've seen over the years that their relationships with Israel have um, improved, for lack of a better word, and they no longer boycott Israel. They no longer ask other companies if they boycott Israel. So we do see a, a little bit of a, of a decrease there, but here's really why the risk is still prevalent. One, whether or not uh, the UAE or any other country, um, you know, set, sets up these treaties or not, it still doesn't prevent any individual company or country from including boycott language in a contract. And and second, and here's really the big part of it, a number of these countries have not set up treaties with Israel. Their relationships with Israel have not improved. And specifically, there's about, I think we're at about nine countries now um, that are part of the U.S. Department of Treasuries. It's called the Treasury List, basically. And what's unique about those countries, it's countries like um, Kuwait is on there, Oman, Qatar, um, Saudi Arabia, there's, there's a number of others. And what's unique about those countries is those countries have boycott laws on the books. It is part of their 
whether it's part of their constitution or their laws, they have boycott laws on the books in those countries. And here's why that becomes a risk. It becomes a risk because, and I'll give you an example. Um, I used to work at Baker Hughes, an oil field services company. We did a lot of business in the Middle East, as you can imagine. And we would bid on contracts and have agreements and those agreements would sometimes be with one of these treasury list countries, right? So let's take, for example, Kuwait. So we'd have an agreement that we were reviewing with a Kuwaiti oil company. And that agreement would say not that you will boycott Israel. It's, it's usually not that direct. It's something much less direct and more subtle, which is you will comply with all the laws of the contract uh, under which this contract is governed, or you will comply with all the laws of the country of Kuwait. And someone who is not experienced enough in anti-boycott law compliance might look at that and say, okay, fine, we'll, we'll comply with all the laws of Kuwait, what's the big deal? But the, the Department of Commerce and Treasury say that it, that is a big deal because essentially you are complying with the boycott laws, right? you are furthering the boycott laws of these countries by agreeing to comply in general. That's, that's where you have to kind of do some, um, find some, whether it's wiggle room or there's a lot of minutia and a lot of detail goes into how can you adjust that language so that your customer, whether it's in Kuwait or Oman or Qatar, will be happy with how you've adjusted it and the US government will look at the changes that you've made to your contract language and say, okay, this is acceptable. You are no longer agreeing to a foreign boycott. So let me follow up on that. You know, with a, I think, natural question is what processes should companies put in place to ensure that they avoid being ensnared in a boycott, whether it's from overt language or that more subtle language, which you pointed out? Um, yeah, so great question. And, and really the answer to that is the, the same for any other type of trade compliance or any type of compliance, which is initially you need to have an internal policy in place. So es essentially, if you are doing business uh, in the Middle East or, or even not necessarily, um, you should have an anti-boycott policy in place, which clearly states, if in case you were ever audited, um, that you, know, you, um, you are aware of the anti-boycott laws, you comply with those anti-boycott laws. Um, but really, uh, you know, to anyone listening who's a compliance professional, just having a policy means nothing, right? If you don't do anything with it. So don't just have your policy sitting on a shelf. You need to be training your appropriate stakeholders in this as to what that policy means. And you should be finding people within the business. Now they could be in supply chain, they could be in logistics, they could be in contract management. These are all areas of a business where we see boycott language. And you should be training up those people so that they know how to spot boycott language. Um, they don't have to be subject matter experts. They don't have to be legal or compliance professionals, but they should know what they might see in a commercial invoice or in a, a bid tender or in a contract that might make them think, you know, oh, this is a red flag, right? It either says outright boycott or Israel or a, a number of other red flag uh, words, or they know that, you know, these are the nine lists, these are the nine countries on the Treasury Department list. So they need to be sure to spot any language that says we will comply with all the laws of that country. 
And once you've trained those people to spot that language, you need to have a way for them to get that language to a subject matter expert in your company. So whatever type of platform that you set up or channel of communication so that those people on the on the front lines, so to speak, can send that contract can send that commercial invoice, um, can send that document over to a compliance professional, a legal professional who can take a look at it and be able to evaluate whether or not they, that language is actually problematic. And problems often occur in that language because it is in any kind of agreement, there's always those subtle words that mean a lot more than they may seem to, to somebody who's not trained. Finally, yeah. um, are there any exceptions? And if so, how should they be handled? So um, there are a few exceptions and, and the biggest exception really has to do um, with um, shipping documentation. So I mentioned earlier on that, you know, um, there is something called a primary boycott, meaning all of these usually Arab countries, they have a sovereign to boycott Israel. And part of that right um, is that they may choose not to import anything from Israel. So some of those uh, Arab League countries may ask, for example, a U.S. company to confirm the country of origin of where something is coming from. And in those cases, you know, whether or not that question uh, it really relates to the Arab League boycott or not, the U.S. government looks at questions about, you know, what we put onto shipping documents, not because we are trying, not because a U.S. company tending to support uh, an unsanctioned foreign boycott, but because those countries have laws that require, um, you know, the import of certain materials only from certain countries. And so in certain situations, and there's some minutia involved in this, um, it is okay to put on shipping documentation or to provide, for example, a positive indication of origin. So for example, if a country says, uh, if Oman says, we don't import anything from Israel, can you confirm nothing here comes from Israel? You can respond to that by saying, well, we can't confirm that nothing comes from Israel. What we can do is give you a positive certification, meaning we certify that this product comes from China or from Germany or from South America, wherever, wherever it is. And it's important to remember, too, whether or not there's an exception, there are still reporting requirements. So anytime, for the most part, U.S. companies are getting these requests, whether or not they're complying with them, whether or not there are exceptions, there are reporting requirements to both the Department of Commerce, which has to be done quarterly, and the Department of Treasury, which has to be done annually, so that the U.S. government knows and is aware of what types of boycott requests are coming in, whether or not you or your company is complying with them. Wow, definitely still a tricky area and, and one that people need to pay attention to. Well, Matt, thank you for sharing these insights with us here and in the chapter U.S. Anti-Boycott Laws, Understanding the Impact and Ensuring Compliance. Uh, I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletow from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.